I'm Damien Barr and welcome to the second of three exclusive readings that I'm doing just for you Salonistas from my novel You Will Be Safe Here. Now some of you will have seen Jacob Rees-Mogg talking just a few weeks ago about the concentration camps that the British established in 1900 and he seemed to confuse the British concentration camps with Butlins or Pontins. The Boer War had people put in camps for their protection. Where the British when, invented the use of concentration but, camps. But, but I'm afraid you're confusing concentration camps with Hitler's extermination camp. These were people who were interned for their safety. So th this is one of the things where you've got to understand the history of what was going on. I understand this history. I've spent the past five years researching this novel. I've looked at the government reports. I've looked at the South African reports. I've read the diaries of women and children who survived and some who didn't. And I can tell you that it wasn't Butlins or Pontins. Those women and children weren't interned for their safety. They were taken there by force by the British because their farms had been destroyed. Their livelihoods had been taken away and they were taken there as a military tactic to break the morale of the men who were out fighting on commando. So it was not a humanitarian action, it was a military action. And if we want to understand the history, we have to go back there. And that's what I'm doing with the earlier part of the novel, where we're with Sarah and her son Fred as they're taken to Bloemfontein concentration camp. And here is Sarah's description of the camp. Our camp, there are others, has 250 tents. The official limit is supposedly 15 per tent, so there are at least 3,000 of us. A week ago, we were all farmers. Now, there are no farms. We are refugees. The ratio of prisoners, that's what my new friend Helen says we are, to soldiers is 100 to 1, but they've got the guns. The only gate is the one out front. There are no fences or walls to keep us in. Where would we run to? Bloemfontein is two miles away. The camp sits on a slope and, just as at home, we can see for miles. But there's nothing out there anymore. No houses, no farms, no grass even. It's all been burned. The few little copies breaking the horizon have been stripped for firewood. There's not even a cloud in the sky. We all worked so hard to tame this land. Perhaps none of us are meant to be here. Because there are no trees, there are no birds. There is nowhere for the weavers to hang their nests, no cover for the guinea fowl. When I mentioned this to Mrs Creel, she just pointed to the vultures circling. Firewood is kept in stores guarded by hands-uppers. Yes, they're in here too. They have whistles to summon a proper soldier if they catch us breaking rules. I swear I'll break more than that if one of them comes near me. It's not enough the khakis have burnt our farms, but now they keep us in here with traitors. Helen says they live in luxury in a special section. The final indignity is the khaki kaffirs set to spy on us. I grieve to see them turn against the people who gave them shelter and work. We are all sons and daughters of the same soil. It's a sin that will not quickly be forgiven. More wagons arrive hourly with their cargo of misery. Some of us sit by the gate, hoping for news. There are reunions sometimes, but mostly it's just waiting. Although our tent is furthest from the gate, where everything useful is, we are also mercifully furthest from the latrines, two long grave-deep trenches. I wretch, describing them, and wish for our polite bucket in the bush back home. A wire runs between them which you have to hold so you don't fall in backwards. The stench reaches up to pull you down. 
There's nowhere safe to look and closing your eyes makes no difference because you can hear everything anyway. The buzz of exultant blowflies is so great it actually drowns some of the awfulness out. Grim, eh, said Helen as she squatted right next to me. I think I managed to nod. Blush you so go, she said, hoisting herself up and extending her hand. I couldn't take it. The worst of it is that there's only one latrine. The men are very good and try to wait, but often rush in, unhitching breeches and apologising. Modesty, it seems, is the first casualty of war. Jacob Rees-Mogg was really clear that the women and children in these camps were well fed. They weren't well fed at all. In fact, starvation and illness caused by starvation um, was one of the greatest causes of death in this place. And if you were a woman who refused to surrender to the British, you got even fewer rations than those who did. So it absolutely was political. Here's Sarah talking in her diary to her husband Samuel about the rations. It's so long since I've had to worry about ounces of anything. You've spoiled me, Samuel. The coffee tastes like the acorns on Corporal Johnson's buttons. The meat I was handed this morning was wrapped in a sheet of their times, which I saved to dry for kindling after reading the headlines through the blood. Madly, I hoped for news of you, a story of a daring raid led by Samuel Vanderwart. But of course, the newspaper was months old, the court circular, all princesses visiting the poor then running away. Apparently their queen remains at Osborne House, marooned in grief. This so-called meat came from something equally old. They say cow, but I say goat, maybe even mule. It rotted in my hands, and where you hope for fat, there were these bright blue specks. What's this? I asked Helen. She skewers meat thinly on knitting needles so it cooks faster and uses less wood. What are these blue bits? Poison, she said. Slow poison. But it's that, or starve. Mrs Creel, who was supervising the roasting of a whole leg of mutton, chimed in, Nonsense, it's simply a preservative. Helen asked her where she got her meat from, but she turned away. Some say the English put fish hooks in too. Children over 12 get adult rations, but because Fred's only six, he gets a whole one sixteenth of a can of condensed milk each day. That's it. How do they even measure one sixteenth? Consequently, you see few fat mothers. Samuel, the children here are scraps, sleeves flapping round their wrists. It's agony. I won't let Fred get like them. I won't. They remind me of ignorance and want from A Christmas Carol. Do you remember the apparitions revealed by the ghosts of Christmas present? They were a boy and a girl, yellow, meagre, ragged, scowling, wolfish. These ancient children make old Mrs Bosa seem youthful. I fear no victory will restore them. They don't give us soap, then call us vermin. I check Fred every morning for lice and so far we've escaped their attentions, but it's only a matter of time. Perhaps you've got it even worse and I shouldn't complain. None of this is necessary. The khakis don't look like they're starving and smell like soldiers probably should. Is this right? I asked the corporal in English when he handed me my ration ticket. The rations are not, I said, reaching for the right word, adequate. Certainly they are not, said the corporal, but they are sufficient and far better than those enjoyed by our boys being kept busy by your husband and his friends. You can always write if you feel you are being at all unfairly treated. 
So much happens in this book, it's really hard to find a bit that hasn't got any spoilers, but I wanted to give you that description of the camp, just so you could know just how wrong Rhys Mogg was on Question Time. If you want to find out more about what happens to Sarah and her friend Helen and wee Fred, you'll have to read the book. And it's out on April the 4th. There's one more extract to follow this, and it's from much later in the story.